City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. So most of us have some sort of, of TV show, especially now in the age of Netflix and Hulu, that is our sort of junk sort of background noise TV. For me, recently, uh, this has become the great British baking show. Um, it is it is like uh, MasterChef, except entirely more British. Um, and MasterChef, where they are agonizing against a tight clock, when you watch the great British baking show, you can see the contestants actively taking tea breaks in the middle of the competition, just sort of standing around with their tea, watching the other contestants. Uh, instead of being cutthroat like MasterChef is here in America. Uh, They're actively helping one another out. Like, oh, do you need some of this? I have some. Oh, I brought some of this from home. They bring ingredients from home. It's a wildly, wildly different show. And that's sort of what you put on when you're folding clothes or you're washing dishes or you're sort of doing those mundane tasks where you just want something you don't have to pay attention to. Well, not to tell tales outside of school, but this time of year for my wife, that sort of background noise junk food TV is the sort of Christmas holiday Hallmark movies that come out this time of year, right? The the Christmas shoes, the princess that doesn't know she's a princess, the sort of saccharine, sweet, annoyingly happy ending those sort of things, you know, I'll come home and she'll be folding clothes and she's watching some awful straight to Netflix TV show. Well, if there was ever a book of the Bible that was that sort of Hallmark movie type of book of the Bible, it would be Ruth. At least in the way that we normally think of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is oftentimes thought about as this this beautiful love story and everything is fine and everybody's a good guy. That's not exactly the case with the book of Ruth. This, this Christmas and this Advent, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the different women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew. And as we've looked through it over the past few weeks and we've looked at these women, some of these women have not been the best characters, not the people that we would have chosen to include. We, we think maybe we would have chosen uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife. And yeah, she had a little bit of hiccup with her faith, but you know, she was pretty great. Or maybe, maybe Rebecca, maybe, maybe Rachel and Leah, some of these sort of, these women who are the matriarchs. But instead of including those women, so far we've seen that included Tamar, um, who seduced her father-in-law. Not exactly someone who we would keep in the genealogy of Jesus. Last week we looked at Jesus's great, 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 and so on, grandmother Rahab. Uh, who, when we think of Rahab, we often append the words to her name, Rahab the prostitute. She was a, she was a madam at a brothel. Not exactly the people that we would put in Jesus' genealogy. This week, we're going to look at the character of Ruth. And as we look at the story of Ruth, what I want to do is I want to sort of lay out for you what happens in the first two chapters of Ruth, because we're going to kind of cover her entire story this morning. Uh, And so what I want to do is lay out the first two chapters, because after that, it gets to a critical point. So in the time of the book of Judges in the Old Testament, uh, there was a famine in the land. And so in 
particular in the land of Judah, there was a man named um, Emelech, and Emelech decided that he was going to move that he couldn't handle the famine any longer, that he needed to do something about it for himself and his children. So Emelech moved from the land of Judah uh, to the land next door, across the river, to the land of Moab. Now, uh, the Moabites were enemies of the people of Israel. They were, they were constantly fighting. They were sort of first cousins that fought all the time, if you will. So he moves there to Moab. And he marries off his two sons to two uh, Moabite women. One's named Orpah. Uh, There's an urban legend, and I don't know how true this is, that Oprah's parents wanted to name her after this character, but misspelled the name on the birth certificate. And that's how we got Oprah. I'm I'm telling you, that's an urban legend I've heard. I'm not sure if it's true. Uh, But Orpah, not Oprah, if you look at it quickly, you're going to think it's Oprah. It's not, it's Orpah. Uh, And another woman named Ruth. He goes there with his, his wife, Naomi, and uh, after a while, bad things happen. Emelech dies, uh, as well as her two sons. And so Naomi is facing an incredible hardship. She's left in a foreign land, with no husbands, no sons, no one who can work in the fields to take care of her. And so faced with this tragedy, which is not just sort of an emotional tragedy, it's a, it's a financial tragedy. Um, in the sort of agrarian society of Moab and of Israel, if you didn't have someone who could work out in the fields to take care of you, you had no source of food. And so Naomi decides that the best thing for her to do is to go back home and hope that maybe somebody in the land of Judah will take care of her. So she tells her two daughter-in-laws, she tells Orpah and she tells Ruth that I'm going back home. And something interesting happens, something unexpected happens. The the Moabite woman, Ruth, decides that she's not going to stay in the land of her parents. That she's going to go with Naomi back home. And one of the really shocking things is that this woman says not just, I want to go back with you, I think that'd be the right thing to do. But she says, no, I think that your God should be my God. I think the God of the people of Israel, that's the true God. And because of that, I want to follow you back to the land of Israel. And so they move back. And as they move back to the land of Israel, they still have no one to take care of them. And so what Naomi begins to do is to tell Ruth, look, we have laws in the land of Israel that when people are harvesting their wheat, if they drop any, they're not allowed to pick it up, which is a kind of a funny rule. But they don't pick it up because any of the folks that are poor in the land of Israel can come back behind them and pick up whatever is dropped. So she says, look, you need to go out and find a field and see if you can pick up what is being dropped by the harvesters. So, Ruth says, okay, I'm young, I'm able-bodied, I will go out and I will start picking up what is dropped by the workers in the field. And as she does, something strange happens. She gets noticed by the owner of the field, and the owner of the field says, hey, um, who's that girl over there? Who is she? And they say, oh, that's the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. There, there is a tinge of racism in this, right? They don't say, oh, that's Ruth. They don't say, oh, that's, that's Naomi's daughter-in-law. No, they say, that's that Moabite woman. 
And what we would expect is for the owner of this land to be like, yeah, make sure you keep a good grip on those stacks of wheat. Uh, don't drop those for some Moabite woman. That's what you would expect. That's what a person in Israel, if he was watching this, if this was sort of following the Hallmark script of the day, you would think he would say, but he doesn't. In fact, he says, hey, uh, hold on loosely, right? As they would have said in the 70s. Um, don't let go. No, he tells, he tells his people that they, should, that they should hold on loosely, that they should be careful to drop a little bit extra every time they go around. And he goes to this woman, Ruth, and he says, hey, Ruth, stay in this field. You'll be taken care of. I'll protect you. If you need to get a drink of water, there's the water cooler, right? It, literally, he tells her where the water cooler is. It's sort of a strange detail uh, for the Bible to give us, but he literally says, that's where the water cooler is. If you get thirsty, you know, go get yourself out of the big orange water cooler. Um, and he says, but you're, you should be good. My people are going to take care of you. And so they do. So she goes home that night with 30 pounds of grain. And Naomi says to her, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. You, you picked up 30 pounds of grain that people were dropping. That's too much. That's a lot. Something's going on here. Whose field were you in? And she goes, oh, uh, some dude named Boaz? Just a guy, I guess, you know. And Naomi says, well, isn't that interesting? It turns out that Boaz is one of the people that could be our kinsman redeemer. This is something we we talked about a little bit when we talked about the story of, of Tamar and Judah. That in Israel, uh, there was a process in place for widows to still be able to to have children, especially um, to keep the lines going. And that it just so happened that this guy that was being super kind to this, this immigrant woman, Ruth, was one of those people who could take care of her and take care of her mother-in-law. So the question is, what happens next? Because if we look at, especially Naomi, when we get to this point, we see somebody who has had real struggles in their life. She has lost her husband and her two sons while living in a foreign land. And for most of us, we know what that feels like to experience great loss. We know what it experience, it feels like to experience times of pain and nothingness. Times where it feels like nothing in our life is working out. But at the same time, Naomi has also experienced some amazing provision by God. It just so happens that the field that her daughter-in-law wanders into is the field of one of their kinsmen redeemer, of one of their uh, relatives that can take care of them, that would continue the line of her son. And it just so happens that he is not the kind of guy that says, no, no, I want to make sure I make all the money I can, make sure you don't drop any wheat, but on the other hand says, no, drop extra wheat for her. So what's Naomi going to do? How is she going to handle this situation now? I'm glad you asked because Ruth chapter 3 answers that question. So if you would, stand up with me. I'm going to read Ruth chapter 3 and we're going to see 
how Naomi responds to this situation. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? That it may be well with you? And is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, But do not make yourself known to the man until he finishes eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk to his heart was merry... And he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are my redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to this threshing floor. And he said, bring your garment you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out and he measured six measures of barley and put it in her, put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. City Church, this is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So the Bible is being a little bit cagey about what happens in this story. But it's not hard for us to begin to to see what is happening. What we're going to see that's happening in this story and that's happening in our hearts is that we are quick to assume that God will not be faithful. And so what we do is we take matters into our own hands. You and I. And in this story, very much so Naomi and even Ruth are quick to assume that God is not going to be faithful to us. God is not going to take care of us. And so what we do is we begin to take matters into our own hands. Despite the fact that you can see in what we would call coincidences, God's hand in this story. That where Ruth happens to go first is to Boaz's house. And Boaz just happens to be one of their family redeemers. It, even though that's the case, 
Naomi's advice is not to trust God. Naomi gives her daughter-in-law some other advice. She tells him to go to the barn after Boaz has worked all day, had a big meal, had a couple beers, and when he's asleep, go uncover his feet, go uncover his legs, and lay down by him. Um, what she told her daughter to do was basically go proposition Boaz. So why? Why would she tell Ruth to go and do this? Because in her mind, this was the way that she could secure a future for their family. In her mind, this was the way that it needed to work out. You know what? We need to go out and get God's blessing for us, and we need to do it by any means possible. What's at the heart of this is unbelief that God's going to take care of us. Despite the fact that she had seen God taking care of her as she had come back into Judah, she still did not let that sink in to her heart. She was living her life as if she had to control everything. Now, the good thing about this story is the good thing about this idea that, that of unbelief is that none of us here in St. Pete struggle with this. <laughs> that none of us here at City Church struggle with the idea of God being distant and us needing to take matters into our own hands. Except we do, don't we? We are very quick to act like God is absent. We are very quick to think that everything is up to us. We're very quick to live our lives out of unbelief. I am too. You know, as I think about the move that we're going through as a church, I mean, even as I look at sort of this this blank wall, which used to have at least a, a rustic charm and beauty, and now has a um, very rustic uncharm <laughs> and matte black stained lack of beauty, I will admit that I have been anxious about the future of City Church. Right? Is, it, is this going to work out? Is it going to happen? Or is it going to be okay for us to move to the theater? Is, it, is God going to take care of us? And in those moments, what's really going on is I'm saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, so maybe God took care of me, maybe God took care of City Church up to this point, but now, now it's up to me. I mean, after all, God helps those who help themselves. Right? We've heard that said before. And when we say things like God helps those who help themselves, who's the real operating person there? Who's the real person with all the responsibility? Me. Me. And so I've got to find a way, by hook or by crook, to make this work. Have you ever found yourself in that scenario? What about in relationships? You know, I know, I know God has promised to take care of me, but you know, I just really want this relationship. So, it doesn't matter what I have to do to make it work, I'm going to make it work because I want this. And I don't trust God to provide. 
you know, I really need this promotion. It would be such a big thing for my family. So I have got to double my hours so that I get this promotion. How many times do we act as if everything is up to us? And not only that, how many times do we compromise what we believe in order to do that? I think most of us, when we're honest, and we sort of start to to peel back the layers of our hearts and, and look at our motivations, most of us are pretty quick to admit that we live out of unbelief. You see, as Christians, we do this by using God as an excuse to do anything. We think so long as we're accomplishing a good goal for God, it doesn't matter what we do to get there. Right? This is, this is the philosophy that the ends justify the means. So long as something good comes out the other end, I'm totally okay with whatever I have to do to get there. Right? Uh, Look, if I get this promotion, I can give more money to the church. So it doesn't matter who I have to lie about at work or who I have to talk down to. I'm going to do it so that, you know, I'm helping people out. I mean, I mean, think of, think of the people that I'll be able to help and support if I get this. You know, if I have this relationship, it'll open other doors for me. So it doesn't matter what I have to do to get there. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think it's easy to look around at Christians and see how we've done this. We are very bad at this, both historically and in our day and age, right? I mean, is not this the story of the Crusades? Historically? Not, not exactly the finest moment for Christianity. Or even in our own time, how many times have we as Christians as a whole been guilty of bait and switch? You should come to this concert. It's just fun music. Be cool. Oh, there's a preacher there. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a thing, but don't, don't worry about that. Right? How many times have we engaged in bait and switch because we think, but if they come to know Jesus, if they become Christians, everything is okay. All is well that ends well. And if you hear and you're not a Christian, I want to, I want to say that yes, you are right that we don't get this right. But don't let that throw you off of the fact that you do this too. All of us struggle with doing things to get what we want and cloaking our motivations. You see, it's not just that God cares about the results. It's not just that God cares about our final actions. He cares about our motivations as well. And so there's Ruth lying on the floor of this greenhouse. What's Boaz going to do? Well, Boaz has a, a little bit of an awkward midnight wake-up call, right? Um, a, a ninth century you up. And as he wakes up, what is he going to do as he sees Ruth there? How is Boaz going to respond to this situation? And what's amazing about this story is that Boaz does not take the easy way. See, Boaz could have decided that, yes, yes, I will be her redeemer. I will be the one that takes care of her. So, you know what? 
if we have a little bit of fun tonight, literally rolling in the hay, what's it going to hurt anybody? Right? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry her tomorrow. Be cool. But he doesn't. He doesn't trade his morals for power. That's not something we as Christians struggle with, right? We don't ever worry about trading what we believe in order to achieve power. We as Christians don't struggle with trading what we believe about raising our kids so that we can have control over them, do we? We as Christians don't compromise our morals so that we can enjoy pleasure for just a minute. Except, yeah, we do. We do all of those things. But Boaz in this story doesn't. In fact, what he tells Ruth is, first of all, um, put, put my robe down. Okay? Let's, let's, let's put the robe down. And not only that, uh, he says, here's what we're going to do. What you did tonight is going to ruin your reputation. Everybody in this city knows that you're a worthy woman, and, and you're coming here trying to do something sketchy. Okay, So you can stay here, but you're going to leave in the morning before everybody wakes up to make their coffee. But when everybody does wake up to make their coffee, I'm going to call a meeting in the town, and I'm going to marry you. There's some, there's some legalese we have to go through. There's some hoops we have to jump through. There's another guy that we've got to figure out. But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. And not only did he promise to take care of her, not only did he, did he protect her reputation, but then he gave her a gift. He said, take out your overcoat, take off the outer part of your robe, and let me see it. And he fills it with grain so that she goes back to her mother-in-law with even more grain than she got the first time. Boaz not only does the right thing, but he does it for the right reason. He doesn't take the shortcut to do the right thing. Which is interesting, because in so many ways, that's the story of Jesus as well. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, one of the temptations, I think one of the most significant temptations of Jesus, was Satan took him up to a high place and said, look, look around at the world. All of this, all of this could be yours. If you would just, just for a minute, bow down and worship me. If you'll just worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. What, what was Jesus being tempted to do in that moment? Oftentimes we read that and go, well, Jesus is God. You know, like, what, how, why is this a temptation for him? What Satan was tempting him to do was take the shortcut to accomplish the right thing. Because what was Jesus going to have to do to secure the people of the world? To forgive your sins of unbelief and mine? He was going to have to go to the cross. He was going to have to endure physical and spiritual torment for you and for me. And what Satan says is, I can give you a shortcut. beauty of the story of Boaz and the beauty of the story of Jesus 
is that he doesn't take the easy way. He took the hard way that led to the cross. He took the hard way that said, look, my people that I love dearly, they will struggle with unbelief. They will struggle with thinking that everything is up to them. They will struggle to, to, to do things the wrong way to accomplish the right goal, and yet I love them. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take the long way around. The hard way that leads to a mountain called Calvary. And so Jesus dies on the cross, not just for our actions, but for our motivations as well. And the story of Ruth reminds us that we have all fallen short, that we all struggle with unbelief. We all struggle to replace God with things like control and power and pleasure. And yet Jesus still looks at us and says, I love you enough to die for you. I'm going to care for you. And so this morning, as we hear this story, as we reflect on Advent and the story of Ruth, one of the things that we need to do as we repent of our unbelief is to look to Jesus and ask him to grow our faith. One of my favorite stories when Jesus was alive on the earth was somebody who came to Jesus and said, would you heal my son? My son is sick. My son is dying. I need you so dearly. Would you heal my son? And Jesus says, I will if you believe. And the man's response is brutally honest. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. For many of us, that should be our prayer this morning. As we reflect not just on our actions, but our motivations. Not just on what we want to accomplish, but the means we use to get there. Our prayer is, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. But there's something else in the story that I want to remind us of as we end our reflection. When, when Boaz gives Ruth the grain when he sends her back home, when he provides for her and her mother-in-law, he gives her barley, which most of us kind of would shrug off and go, oh, neat, that's what he gave her. But barley was the food of the poor people. Barley was the food that, that anybody could buy. And, and Boaz was sitting on a pile of not just barley, but also wheat. And what's interesting is, God is going to provide what you need. God is not always going to provide what you want. You see, some of us look at God and say, why aren't you taking care of me? I don't want to eat this hamburger helper. I want to eat a steak. God, why aren't you taking care of me? I know I have these friends, but I want those friends. God, why aren't you taking care of me? I want X and you keep giving me Y. I want wheat and you keep giving me barley. You see, this is a chance for us to remember that God will provide for our needs. But we have to so often trust that those are better than the things that we want. And that's hard to believe. 
May that make us cry out, Lord, I believe, but help with my unbelief. Let's pray.